remain standing and let's go to the book of Hebrews this morning, chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 and we are continuing our foundation of faith series today that we began the first Sunday of the new year. Today we will focus on the story of David, the story of David. There in Hebrews chapter 11, let's first read verse number 6 and then I'll jump down to verse 32. Uh, again, I'm going to ask something very difficult this morning that you would also, after we're done, turn to 1 Samuel 17. Don't worry, I'll repeat it, okay? 1 Samuel 17, and we're going to spend a lot of our time there this morning. But first, let's start with this. Hebrews 11, verse number 6. It reminds us of this truth. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Then down to verse number 32 of Hebrews 11, we find the name of the character we're studying today. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets. Brother Lee, would you pray for us as we begin? Amen. You may be seated today. 1 Samuel 17 is where we're going to spend a lot of our time, so if you have your Bible, uh, Maybe hold your place there as well. 1 Samuel 17. Uh, when it comes to the story of David, I realized this just this past week, that although I've taught this story, specifically David and Goliath, a number of times over the years, I don't believe I have ever preached it to adults. Um, I've, I've taught it, I've studied it, I've learned it, but I think it's always been to teenagers or even children. And so I'm excited today uh, to dive into this story of great faith. What does a life of faith actually look like? That is the question that Hebrews 11 seeks to answer for us today. Now let me begin by saying this about the story of David and Goliath. Often this story is sort of used to um, spread a message that says if you just have enough faith, you can get rid of all of your problems in life. That if you have enough faith, you'll conquer any giant that's in front of you. Maybe for you, that giant is cancer. And so if you have enough faith, then God will take that away. Maybe it's some sort of personal struggle. Maybe your giant in front of you is financial and, and you are poor. Therefore, if you just have enough faith, you will conquer the giant of poverty. I personally don't believe that is the main focus of this story. Because there are times where we don't beat the giant in front of us. There are times where God doesn't take away the thorn that's in our flesh like the Apostle Paul. Does that mean that we must not have enough faith? No, I think maybe the greater act of faith is that even when it appears the giant has beaten us, even here on earth temporarily, we will not stop trusting in God. That our faith will not draw back even in the midst of difficulty or circumstance. That even if the giant doesn't fall when we pray and when we ask God, we can still trust that he is good, that he is faithful. And that he is in control. To me, that may be the greater act of faith, is it not? You see, let's not forget the context of Hebrews 11. It's not just a random story, uh, uh, um, a uh, top ten greatest hits of the Old Testament where he is just highlighting these people just for the sake of talking about them. No, the author of Hebrews says that if someone truly has faith, that faith will be evidenced in their life. And their faith will be proven because they do not draw back in the face of difficulty. They do not run away. 
And that's what Hebrews 11 is all about. It's a record of men and women who did not draw back, but they lived a life of faith. Does that mean they didn't stumble or they didn't struggle? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, the opposite is, is often true, that because we have faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ, we will struggle. That process is called sanctification. Our entire life is a battle between our flesh and our spirit, between the old man and the new man that Christ wants us to be. It is a struggle. Faith is not uh, the absence of struggle or difficulty. True faith doesn't draw back in the midst of difficulty. No matter what the circumstance, we still trust that God is good. And that faith, friend, will be evidenced in our life. Faith is not just saying you have faith, but it is proven by our actions. We are not saved by our works, but because we are saved, we will do work. That's what the book of James teaches us. William Booth said this, faith and works should travel side by side, step answering to step, like the legs of men walking, first faith, then works, then faith again, then works again, until they can scarcely distinguish which is the one and which is the other. The story that we will study today is a story of faith. It's not the story of a perfect man. As a matter of fact, as we begin each of our character studies, let me give you a reminder that David was a sinner saved by grace. Can you say amen to that? He struggled. He failed. He was a sinner. It is recorded for us to read of some of his failures. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and then orchestrated the events whereby Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba, would be killed in battle. That failure, that sin... Would, would send ahead of him a lifetime of heartache. A lifetime of hurt would follow that decision. This was not a sinless man, but he was a faithful man. He had faith, and that's why we're reading about him today. It's kind of ironic because when we think about the Old Testament, one of the first people we think about is King David, right? All of the things that King David did and the stories that we read about and his heroic actions and, and his failures and mistakes. But in Hebrews 11, verse 32, he's almost just like a footnote in the hall of faith. We think that he would be in bold, you know, and, and it would talk about him a lot. But actually, verse 32 just says this, three words, of David also. Of David also. Yet he's there. And because God was pleased by his faith, he is recorded for us as an example today. The author says, in essence, time will fail me. He had so many Old Testament examples that he could have given to encourage his Hebrew readers. He's running out of time, not faithful examples. And so he just adds in there, of David also. David seems to be a footnote, and yet as we study the Old Testament story, we realize that he was a hero of the faith. Let me just rewind a little bit to 1 Samuel 17, and if you're there, I invite you to turn there with me and stay there with me, because that's where we'll spend the rest of our time. But Let me provide a little bit of context. Israel was almost in constant war with another nation called the Philistines. Now, King Saul had an opportunity to destroy the Philistines, and he didn't. And because of that decision, they would fight and there would be bloodshed for years and years to come. When we pick up in 1 Samuel 17, this is what we find. Israel warring with the Philistines. They are at a place called the Valley of Elah. Now, you could Google that place and see what it looks like today, but it was a prime place for a battle to happen. On one side of the mountains was Israel. On the other side were the Philistines. After preparing for battle, 
one soldier leaves the Philistines camp, walks down into the valley of Elah and begins to speak to the children of Israel. He has a very interesting proposition for them. Instead of both armies battling against each other, how about one person from the Philistines and one person from the Israelites fight as representatives of everyone and instead of mass bloodshed, only one man needs to die, but the winner would then take possession of the losing army. They would be their servants. Now, it just so happens that the guy from the Philistines that comes forward is a man we know as Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, verse number 4, the word of God says this, And there went out a champion out of the, the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, a cubit is about 18 inches. Some say it's a little less, some say it's a little bit more, so it varies somewhat. But estimates believe that Goliath was somewhere between 9 and 11 foot tall. 9 and 11 feet. Just for reference, the tallest NBA player of all time was a guy who played for the Wizards back in the 1990. He was from Romania. His name was George Mirshan. And that guy was seven foot, seven inches tall. Goliath is easily over nine foot tall. That's like two and a half John Haywood stacked on top of each other. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> John was right there. It was Jerry Kern in the early service. I just had the eyesight and... Uh, this guy is massive, and the Bible describes his armor as well. It, it's really trying to communicate to us he is covered from head to toe. His armor weighed around 150 pounds. His predominant weapon was a spear. They say that was like a weaver's beam. If you're like, well, wh what's that, right? It's exactly what it sounds like. There was a particular contraption for weaving fabric and clothing, and at the top, was a large wooden beam where the fabric hung down. It was like a large beam in his hand. The head of the spear was about 15 pounds. This guy, Goliath, over nine feet, 150 pounds of armor. He's got somebody to carry his shield with his spear, walks down into the valley and gives this challenge. Why must we all fight? I will fight one of your men. If I win, you become our slaves. If you win, you, then we become your slaves. It's as simple as that. Surprisingly, no one took Goliath's challenge. No one answered his call. He stood before them and said, I defy the armies of Israel. He blasphemed the living God, and yet there was not found a man of enough faith to battle this Goliath of a human being. Instead, 1 Samuel 17, verse 11 tells us this. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And that is the backdrop for David's great act of faith. Let's look at David today and study his faith. The first thing we learn about David's faith is that his faith was unexpected. It was unexpected. Faith often grows from the least likely places. You see, King Saul had been disobedient to God a number of times. We'll study that more this evening. And because of his disobedience, God took the kingdom away from Saul, and he told Samuel, his prophet, I will give the kingdom to another. He commanded Samuel to go to a particular man's house where, would, where he would reveal the next king of Israel. 1 Samuel 16, in verse number 3, God says to Samuel, Call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do, and thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. God does not reveal to Samuel which of Jesse's sons he would anoint, he just tells him, go, and I will show you when you get there. Down in verse number 6 of 1 Samuel 16, it says this, And it came to pass when they were come, that he, Samuel, looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. 
But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the, what? The heart. It's interesting, even Samuel falls prey to this trap of outward ability or talent. Saul was a head and shoulders above everybody else. That's why they chose him as king in the first place. And now the next king, Samuel sees Eliab, the firstborn son of Jesse, and he says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And God says, Samuel, do not look on his outward appearance. And in other words, have you not learned anything from Saul? Do not look on his outward appearance. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God says he looks on the what? The heart. So Samuel says, next, next son, who you got? They bring Abinadab, the second-born son. God refuses Abinadab. He says, what about the third? It's Shema. He says, nope, it's not Shema either. Then the fourth son, then the fifth son, then the sixth son, then the seventh son. He runs out of sons in the house. And he says, uh, you got any more? Are, are all your children here? Are you hiding any of them? And, and Jesse says, well, we do have one more, the youngest, but he's out keeping the sheep. Samuel says, well, go get him. 1 Samuel 16, verse 12, it says, and he sent and brought him in. This is David. Now he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance, goodly to look on. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. This was unexpected. He was the youngest. He, he was probably the smallest. He wasn't the man like Eliab was. David probably didn't expect him to be chosen. Uh, Samuel didn't expect for David to be chosen. Eliab didn't expect. Jesse Jesse didn't expect it so much that he didn't even ask him to come in. Like not even, just like a shot, Dad. You think maybe? He's like, no way. <laughs> just stay out there with the sheep. Watch the sheep. I'll say this. One thing David had that they didn't. Faith. He had faith. You give me somebody with great faith and faithfulness any day over somebody with talent. Because people who are really talented but not faithful, because they're not faithful, their ability goes unused. David's faith beat Saul's ability any day. The world is looking for ability. God is looking for faithfulness. Would he find us faithful? This story, by the way, is not about how great David is, lest we be mistaken. It's about how great God is and how this great God uses the unlikeliest of people, not because of their ability or talent or skill, but because of their faith and by his grace. Why? Because it's from those people that he gets the greatest glory. Because when God uses the Davids of the world, the unexpected places, the world knows there's no way they did that on their own. That has to be God. And from those unlikely, unexpected places, God gets the glory. His faith was unexpected. Number two, his faith was cultivated. It was cultivated. What do I mean by that? Well, everyone, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, everyone has a measure of faith. You have some faith. Without faith, you couldn't even be saved. But then, as we grow in Christ, our faith grows. It develops, it matures, it cultivates. As we consistently trust in God and depend on Him, our faith is nurtured in our lives. This is how it works. God gives us little opportunities to exercise our faith, and then as we do, our faith is cultivated. Maybe you can remember back to the first time God called you to do something. Maybe you got saved and you learned about tithing and giving to the Lord. And you thought, how are we ever going to do this? We can't, afford, we can't afford groceries, let alone to give to the Lord. And yet you stepped out in faith, 
God rewarded that faith. He was pleased by that faith. And now you can't imagine not giving to the Lord. Maybe God asked you to give a testimony. And you thought, I am literally going to die if I have to get up and start talking in front of somebody. Or, or maybe it was to teach a, a certain class and you thought, there's no way I could ever lead that or I could ever teach that. And yet you step out in faith. Your faith grows. God stretches you. And now you look back and you think, that was easy back then, right? Our faith is cultivated over time. Let me put it this way. David's faith didn't start in the valley when he was about to face Goliath. It started in the field when he was a shepherd keeping his father's sheep. And it cultivated over time. Let's look at how David's faith developed. When we first met David, where was he? In the field keeping his father's sheep. He was doing the job entrusted to him. Fast forward, after Samuel anoints David as the future king of Israel, the next time David appears is during the battle between Israel and the Philistines. Jesse, David's father, doesn't send David to war. Why? Because he's the youngest. Why would you send that one? Instead, he sends his three eldest sons. They go off to war while the younger sons stay and remain behind. Eventually, Jesse says to David, David, I want you to bring some supplies to the battle. Uh, uh, get a report, see how your brothers are doing, give them these food and, and supplies. And so David, he obeys. Faithfully, he goes. In 1 Samuel 17 now, verse 20, it says, And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the trench as the host was going forth to fight and shouted for the battle. Now there's a phrase, Jacob, if you would go back to the beginning of that verse, there's a phrase in this verse that I don't want you to miss. It says David does what his father asked. He rose up and early in the morning, notice this, left the sheep with a keeper. Uh, if you believe the word of God is inspired, say amen. So is this in here by coincidence or accident? This has nothing to do with the story. And yet the Bible records for us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that David left the sheep with a keeper. He was so concerned. When we first met him, he was out in the field with the sheep. Now before he goes off to the battle, he is concerned about the sheep. Because they have been entrusted to his care, he leaves the sheep with a keeper, and the author of this particular book felt it necessary to tell us that he left the sheep with a keeper. I don't think that's in there by accident. I think it's another reminder to us of this principle that David was faithful even in the little things. David gets to the battle. There he finds his brothers and the army and Goliath. Now, the Bible tells us that Goliath challenged the Israelites for 40 days. Can you imagine that? Day after day, he walks down into that valley, blasphemes God, defies the armies of Israel, challenges, and then walks away as Israel hides in their tents. We don't know what day it was when David got there, but maybe it was the 40th day. Maybe it was the final day. And as David arrives to the battle, there comes the giant. And just as he had done 40 days prior, he defies Israel's army and blasphemes God. And for the first time, David hears it. 1 Samuel 17, verse 24, it says this, and all the men of Israel, notice this, when they saw the man, when they saw the man. We read in scripture that we walk by faith and not by what? Sight. They saw the man, fled from him, and were sore afraid. At this point in time, there are still no takers. 
Saul, who again was probably the most qualified to fight Goliath, isn't willing to do it itself, himself, although he is willing to put a bounty on Goliath's head, and he promises to the Israelite that beats this guy, he would, he would give him a great, uh, uh, massive amount of wealth, and also his daughter's hand in marriage. David doesn't know any of that. All David hears are the words of Goliath. And it says in 1 Samuel 17, verse 26, And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? Notice these words, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? David says, if I could put it maybe in, in simpler terms, Who is this guy, and who is going to shut him up? Who is this? He's, he's, I can imagine he's looking around in utter amazement as Israel runs to their tents in fear, and he says, who is this man? Are you not hearing the same things that I'm hearing? Eliab, David's brother, he doesn't like that. I think Eliab was jealous of David, and he says, David, I know the naughtiness of your heart. The only reason you came here, you don't care about what Goliath said. The only reason you came here is you wanted to see the battle. He's jealous. 1 Samuel 17, 29, David responds to his brother, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? You would think David's brother would encourage his faith, but the opposite is true. Maybe Eliab should have been the one fighting Goliath, since after all, Samuel said, Surely this is the guy. And yet Eliab questions David's faith. It's amazing how discouragement can come from the unlikeliest places as well. Sometimes, maybe from those closest to us. Maybe even from the people of God. Eventually, word gets back to Saul that David's willing to fight. So, Saul sends for David. 1 Samuel 17, 32, it says, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him, Goliath. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. I want you to keep in mind the context here. For 40 days, Goliath has taunted the Israelites, and for 40 days, there have been zero takers. And now a young boy steps to the plate to take on this giant. What was the difference between David and thousands of Hebrew soldiers, including three of his big brothers and King Saul? David had what? Faith. He had faith. And because he had faith, he would not draw back. Verse 33 of 1 Samuel 17, And Saul said to David, Notice the progression here, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. So you have an untrained youth against a trained warrior from his youth. That's a recipe for disaster, folks. Verse 34, And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. When he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. More on that story tonight. How could David have such faith against Goliath? Can I say this again? Because David's faith didn't start in the valley when he was about to face Goliath. It started in the field when he was a shepherd, keeping his father's sheep, and it was cultivated over time. Faithfulness is the adhering or observance of a duty, keeping your word, fulfilling your obligation. It means being loyal, constant, and reliable. And because David had faith, he was faithful. Faith is the root. Faithfulness is the fruit. Therefore, if you don't have faith, I don't expect you to be faithful. And if you're not faithful, that means you're not living by faith. David had faith. And he had faith. We know that he had faith because he was faithful. The truth is this. If the Lord can't trust you to be faithful in the little things, how could he trust you to be faithful over greater things? I think there are a bunch of Christians talking about how they're ready to face Goliath when God can't even trust them with a few sheep. 
Here's the principle from Scripture. Luke 16, verse 10. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. He that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Often Christians waste a lot of time waiting around for big opportunities which may never come. Instead, how about we just be faithful in the little things God has given us to do? Sometimes it's the little things that trip us up. It's the little things that stop us. Uh, last week, I, I was going for a run in the morning. My wife was taking the kids to school. She, she passed me as I was on my way home, and she thought it important enough to send me a text message. See, my wife had woken up that morning, and uh, I think she had some leftover cookie dough. And so she baked some cookies first thing in the morning. I don't think my wife wanted us to eat them first thing in the morning, but just to have them when the kids got home and when I got home. But she texted me in the morning on my way back. Before I got home, I got a text message. And uh, she said, um, don't eat the cookies. Hang on, all right, there's more to it than that. Don't eat the cookies because, she said, as she was baking them, there was some parchment paper, and the parchment paper burnt, and it actually kind of burnt to the cookies. And so it's, it's 7 in the morning, and I was a little bit offended at this point <laughs> that she thought at 7 in the morning I would let something so little as burnt paper stop me from eating those <laughs> cookies. <laughs> uh, I didn't. Uh, it's the little things. Are we faithful in the little things? There was a, uh, a woman in Honduras that uh, at our recap service last Sunday night, a few of our folks spoke about. Her name was Suyapa, and she just blessed my heart when we were in Honduras. Uh, Suyapa does not lead a great ministry at the church plant of Eric and Ashley Woodworth. Uh, she does not teach the masses. She doesn't even teach a class at all. If you were to ask her, she would say, I could never, <laughs> which is... Be careful when you say something like that to God, right? I'll never, or I can never. I think the Lord smiles at those uh, statements. But if you were to ask her, she would probably say, I could never teach. She likely won't lead thousands to Christ in her lifetime. Uh, Suyapa, her ministry is a little bit different. You see, she comes early before anybody gets there, and she makes sure the building is set up and it's clean. Afterwards, she stays late, and she picks up, she tears down all the chairs. On one event that we did, she showed up late. There she was, Suyapa came, and she started stacking the chairs. And I was just observing for a second um, because it, again, blessed my heart. She was probably thinking, won't you give me a hand? That's <laughs> what, what she was probably thinking. But I thought, honestly, um, it blessed my heart because my brother and I, uh, that's how we started ministry, cleaning a building, scrubbing toilets, setting up so many tables, so many chairs, and not like the cute plastic tables that we have, the wooden, the heavy, wo you know what I'm talking about, wooden ones that the metal is, uh, they put razor blades on the side of it when you lift it. You guys know what I'm talking about? Some of you don't know. You've never, you've never moved one, but, and, uh, and I thought, how precious, and, and here's what she said. You think, well, is that really that important? Well, if Suyapa didn't do what she did, then my brother wouldn't be able to do what he was doing. And that's her ministry. And we may see it as a little thing. I don't think God sees it as a little thing. Hudson Taylor said, a little thing is a little thing, but faithfulness in the little things is a great thing. A little life of faith may be what God is calling us to. Little faith. A life of faith is not a single moment, but little steps of faith, which lead to bigger steps of faith. See, we all want the faith to face the giant, but do you have enough faith to face the lion and the bear? David did. If you can't be faithful in the area that God has entrusted to you right now, no matter how little it appears in your eyes, then what makes you think he's going to use you for something greater? 1 Samuel 17, verse 36, David didn't see, look, now, I've never owned livestock. I had chickens a couple times. They're not 
alive anymore. I don't know if that gives you a hint of how that went, but, uh, and they weren't meat chickens either. Uh, we didn't butcher them, but a bear wanders into the flock and says, I want one of your sheep. I'm going to be honest with y'all, all right? Maybe I'm more like a hireling here, but I'd say, you can, you can have it, all right? It's yours, man. Let me know if you want to come back for seconds. A lion wanders in. David didn't see his ministry to his father's sheep as a little thing. But it was a step of faith that God gave him. And he said, thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. In other words, David is saying, if God could use me against the lion and the bear, those animals did not defy the living God. They didn't blaspheme God. So if God used me against them, how much more will he use me against this Philistine who has defied the living God? God saw that David was faithful over the few sheep of his father as a shepherd over the flock of his father's sheep, and God knew that he would be faithful as a shepherd over the flock of Israel. William Barthurst once said, Oh, for a faith that will not shrink, though pressed by every foe, that will not tremble on the brink of any earthly woe, that will not murmur nor complain beneath the chastening rod, but in the hour of grief and pain will lean upon its God, a faith that shines more bright and clear when tempests rage without, that when in danger knows no fear, in darkness feels no doubt. That's the type of faith that David had. His faith was cultivated over time. Number three, and lastly, his faith was tested. It was tested. It's been said that a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. A faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. And David had proven himself faithful, but now he would come face to face with his greatest test. Saul, unwilling to go fight the the Goliath, the giant himself, and was hesitant to send David, but there were no other options. So being the good king that he was, he offered David his armor, at least, because he wasn't wearing it, to go into the battle. It appears as if maybe it didn't fit, (laughs) and it was too big, but primarily David says, I haven't tested it before. And so David takes his own weaponry, with no armor, and he goes to fight Goliath. You know, it's funny because this is one of our favorite stories to share with kids. Um, And uh, it's almost like a Sunday school staple, right? Every couple months, you have to teach David and Goliath or somebody's going to kick you out of being a, a kid's teacher, right? David and Goliath over and over. But, however, even though it's one of the most well-known stories in our children's ministries, If this event was recorded, not a one of us would allow our kids to watch it because it is a brutal story. And usually the way we tell it is that David throws a rock and, you know, and then he and then we end it kind of fades off and he beat the giant. I remember when I first taught Sunday school, it was to junior high boys. And I thought we're going to teach the story. And I just taught all the way through the story. And as I got toward the end, I noticed their eyes were getting bigger and bigger. And and they were kind of like, we don't really remember this part. (laughs) Like, it's in there. This is a brutal story. And we kind of picture it, you know, and we might whisper, and he cut off his head. And then we we picture like this just clean head, just whoop, you know, and it just kind of rolls off into a basket. And he's like this, you know, pristine, preserved. No, folks. All right, I'm not going to get too deep into this here, but uh, let's just say I've processed a few deer in my life, and uh, things don't always work that easy, okay? We're, uh, there's a few younger kids, so I won't get too deep, but I will just say he doesn't have a sword, but he's not just taking one whack at this thing. David would have hacked his head off of his body. Let's be careful when we're like, yeah, just be like David and conquer the Goliaths in your life. And you're like, the Goliath, my Goliath is my boss. And it's like, wait, what? And uh, like, hang on a second, pause, read the rest of the story, okay? And then he lifts his head in the air, a human head 
He holds it probably with two hands. He's got a big old head. He's a big guy. Blood pouring down his arms and dripping on his body. Body parts hanging out. This isn't a cutesy little story. This is a brutal story. And yet David is willing to face the consequences of his faith. He steps out in faith. In verse 40 of 1 Samuel 17 says he took his staff in his hand. He chose him five smooth stones out of the brook. He put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had even in a scrip, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistines. Picture this. King Saul, David's brother, thousands of fearful Hebrew soldiers with their complete focus on a teenager with a stick and some rocks. Can you imagine what was going through their heads at this crucial moment in the history of Israel. Five stones he takes. Why five stones? The Bible doesn't tell us. There's a few theories. Now some would say, well, did he not have enough faith that he would take him out with one stone? Maybe he thought, it's a big dude. It's going to take a few rocks to take him down. Another theory, some commentators state, the Bible does tell us Goliath had four brothers. So some would say, David was ready to kill Goliath, and just in case any of his brothers wanted some, he was ready to take them out too. I like that theory, by the <laughs> way. 1 Samuel 17, 41, it says, And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, it's almost like he's looking, where, where's this voice coming from? He disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. Verse 43, And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves or sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. David does have a staff in his hand, and he has the stones. David says, am I, or Goliath says, Am I a dog? You're coming at me with a stick? The stick was the least of his problems, as he would soon discover. Verse 44, and the Philistines said to David, come to me and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, thou comest to me with the sword and with the spear and with the shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the gods, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. I want you to notice David doesn't even mention the weapons he possesses. Yahweh is his weapon. David does not view this battle as a David and Goliath battle. He views it as Goliath and God. And David is simply the instrument in the hand of a great God. And the reason that God used David is because he was pleased to do so because David had faith. When Goliath came against the Israelites, all the soldiers thought, he's so big, we'll never kill him. We'll never be able to kill him. David thought, he's so big, I'll never miss him. 1 Samuel 17, verse 46 says, This day, this is David speaking, This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. He's a prophet. He says, And I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the beast of the earth. Notice his motivation, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Is it any wonder God chose David and not someone else? Verse 47, And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Notice the motive of David. Every victory he would experience, he would point others to know who God is. Christian, every victory we experience in our lives ought to do the same thing. It ought to point people to the Lord and his victory on Calvary's hill. David's eye was on Yahweh and his faithfulness, not on the giant and his words. That's what a life of faith looks like. Our eyes are not resting on our circumstances. They are resting on the Lord. His eyes weren't on the rocks in his hands. His eyes were on the rock of ages in heaven. That's what faith looks like. And David was willing to die for the Lord. 
Now, we might say, I, I, would, I would be David, Pastor Andrew. I would step, and when no one else would, I would step up and I would fight Goliath. I would die for God. Maybe the better question is, are you living for him? The just shall live by faith. There's a good chance that for the majority of us here, God will never call you to die for him. But he is calling each and every one of us to live for him. The just shall live by faith. Watch David's faith. In verse number 48, it says, And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hastened, notice this, and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. He runs. Ultimately, David had the faith not just to talk, not just to renounce Goliath, not just to prepare for battle, but to actually draw near the Philistine. That's real faith. When David would later say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. This was his valley of the shadow of death. And he did not fear the evil of Goliath because he had faith that God was with him and that God would deliver him. When David walked into that valley, every single person on both sides thought David was dead. Everyone. Except for David. 1 Samuel 17, verse 49, the story closes, and David put his hand in his bag, took thence a stone, slang it, smote the Philistine in his forehead, that the stone sunk into his forehead, and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. He didn't have a sword. Verse 51, therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword, drew it out of the sheath thereof, slew him, cut off his head therewith, and when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. David didn't get his faith in the Valley of Elah. He had it long before. His faith was proven against Goliath, not discovered. His faith was tested and he passed the test. Can God test our faith? Or at the first hint of difficulty, do we draw back? Do we stop serving? Do we stop telling others about him? Do we pull away? A faith that can't be tested, can't be trusted. This is what a life of faith looks like. I believe there is a greater purpose to this story. Please, if you leave here this morning and your only thought is, well, be like David, I think you've walked away with the wrong application. In reality, I don't want you to be completely like David because David was a sinner and he made many mistakes. We can look at his faith as a great example, but I believe that there is a greater purpose to this story. See, the truth is, when Christians study this book and this story, we immediately say, we are David, and our problems, that's Goliath. Our difficulties, that's the giant in our life. I think we have it mixed up. I think the truth is, we're really not David in this story. We're the scared Israelites on the mountaintop who won't come and can't come down into the valley. So here's what we need. We need a representative. We need someone who will walk down into the valley, face the enemy, defeat the enemy, so that in him we can all be victorious because he serves as our substitute. Does that sound familiar? You see, as David defeated the Goliath and as he slew the enemy, so Jesus Christ, who was the greater David, came and he fought a greater enemy. Death, hell, Satan, 
and the grave. And he died as our substitute. He went down into the valley of the shadow of death as our representative. And our sin was placed upon him. And there he bore the wrath of God. He died on the cross. He was buried in the grave. And he rose again the third day victorious so that all of us may put our faith and trust in him as our great king and leader. And we would be saved. That's the greater story. The life of David reminds us that even King David needed a savior. Even on his best day, with the giant's head in his hand, victorious, he was still a sinner in need of grace. And David was saved by that grace, not through any righteous acts of his own, but through faith. And you can be saved by faith today as well. And as Christ saves us, he calls us to live a life of faith and our salvation is proven it's not earned it's proven by living that life of faith would you stand with me this morning as you stand if you would bow with me for just a moment every head bowed and every eye closed if you're here this morning and there has been a time in your life where you have put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, and you know that you stand today forgiven and saved, not because of any righteous act that you have done, but by grace through faith. If that's your testimony this morning, would you raise your hand for just a moment that I may see that? Amen. All, the room, all around the room, you may put your hands down. Is there one here or maybe... A few here today would say, Pastor Nathan, I'm not sure if I died today, I would go to heaven. There's never been a time in my life where I have truly put my faith in Jesus Christ and asked him to save me. If that's you this morning and you're unsure of your salvation, can I pray for you? I won't come to where you're at. I won't seek to embarrass you, but I do want to pray for you. Is there anyone like that this morning? Say, pray for me, Pastor Nathan. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Just reach up your hand for just a moment that I might see it. Amen, I see that hand. Amen, I see that hand. Anyone else? I'd like to encourage you, and I would plead with you and beg you if I could. Today is the day of salvation. There is nothing on this earth worth trading your soul and your eternity for if you have not been saved after i pray in just a moment i'm going to invite you to come forward i'll meet you in the front and we can talk about how your sins can be forgiven christian i don't really want to ask you what the giant in your life is right now but i will ask you is god testing your faith can he trust your faith enough to test it Maybe there is something that you'd like to lay before the Lord. You've been depending on yourself, your own strength, and uh, now you're ready to depend on Him. Maybe there's something He's asking you to do, and you're afraid. Um, when we step down into the valley, that doesn't mean we'll be without fear. Um, but it does mean God will be with us. Father, I pray that you would bless our time of invitation as we seek to worship you with one final song. I do pray for those who raised their hand this morning, acknowledging their lack of salvation. I pray that today they would step out in faith and call upon you. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.